Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Lead Like You Give a Damn, where I speak with leaders and leadership experts who have cracked the code on leading with authenticity, purpose, and effectiveness. This show is brought to you by ScaleYourLeadership.com, which provides no-fluff, self-paced courses to help you scale your leadership impact. You can discover the impact of your leadership by taking the short assessment at ScaleYourLeadership.com. Now on with today's show, I am your host, Dave McKeown, and my guest today is Dominic Monkhouse. Dominic is a proven architect of business growth and he helps ambitious tech CEOs and their leadership teams transform their business plans into business models which ultimately leads to clarity, alignment and increased urgency and growth. Listen in as we talk about what it means to truly scale a business, why most meetings make you want to stab yourself in the eye and how to know if your organization has outgrown your leadership abilities. As always make sure you're subscribed to get notified of each episode as it comes out. Let me know if you've got any questions or comments. And as always, please enjoy the show. Well, joining us today from his farm near Salisbury is Dom Monkhouse. Dom, how are you? Dave, I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Did I get your location right? You did. Salisbury, England in Wiltshire. Excellent. So lots of natural stuff happening around you, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so Dom, you live in the world of scalability and helping teams and organizations scale, which over the last couple of years has somewhat become pervasive in, a, in its use across a whole bunch of different use cases. What does it mean to you to truly scale an organization? Well, I think it's interesting. I'm just glancing behind me. There was a book written by a guy in the US, which was, yeah, job creation in America. And in that work, what he did is he realized that all the jobs that get created in the US get created by mid-market firms who are scaling. Mm. And because the big firms, what they do is as, there's a, as an economic downturn hits, they get rid of people. And then as the economy swings around again, they try and hire people as little, as few people as possible. And right. then you've got the small, you've got the small businesses that just never get past sort of 10 people. Mm. And, and it's the businesses in the middle that where all the job creation gets done. And so that's where I play. I mean, the OECD has a technical definition, which is 20% annual growth in either headcount or revenue for three years back to back right which means you're sort of doubling every three years right Right. and that's i'd say the clients that i work with that tends to be where they're at or more you know some clients were working with growing you know 300 percent a year Mm -hmm. and so the challenges i think are very similar but it's definitely growth rather than it's businesses that are growing rather than businesses that are searching for growth and look you don't have to scale up you know we run regular workshops and remember we had some business leaders here for a workshop last summer and they said we're here because we're trying to work out whether we want to scale or not like mm. we're growing now but maybe we just want to put a cap on it and stop our business at this size and not have some of the challenges that would come if we grew faster. I think that's an important distinction because there are some things that you can do and achieve as a business that made that choice not to scale that you don't get if you do make that decision to go for it. What does it look like for a business that says, hey, you know what, we are just happy to just tap off our, our growth here? Well, I do think that it is possible also to sort of not cap off your growth when you cap off your headcount. Mm. There's a company and a digital agency down in Brighton called PropellerNet, and they've got this, I think 60 people 
is the number of people in their organization and they say we don't want to stop growing we, in fact mm -hmm. we don't want to stop growing our revenue we're just not going to hire any more people so they have to look at automation and they have to look carefully at who they hire because obviously there's still a bit of staff attrition and you know it just forces you to work really hard so they as a digital agency automated a whole load of stuff that they used mm. to do and then they developed that as a product and then they sold that product around the world to other digital agencies or there's another business up in Vista Simon Bitliff has a business and again they're 50 people they've capped it at 50 but they what they want to see is growth revenue growth revenue per employee and profit per employee to continue to grow so they keep mm -hmm. looking at how can we change the way we do business so I don't think that necessarily capping the number of people caps your ambition it certainly makes it harder and it makes it means you've got to do it differently but you then you have different challenges rather than maybe people related challenges for sure. And then for those businesses that do get to that point of 20% annual growth or more for three years, is, is that useful definition you shared stated in those companies, job growth, number one that you've mentioned, very admirable, of course, great goal to have in there a reason to push for it. What else do you get as a team or as an organization if you're able to break through that barrier? Because there is a barrier from growth to scalability, and we'll talk about that in a minute or two. But other than that job creation, what, what do you get as a business if you can get to that point of scalability? I think... I mean, if I look at my own time working in fast growing businesses, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, you feel like you can do no wrong. You know, everything you touch turns to gold. You know, you, yeah, everything has a positive tinge to it because they're all success based challenges and you've got money to invest. Mm. And I was using a footballing analogy today from the premiership, you know, my team, Newcastle United, you know, they can't pay people to go and play for them, even though they're notionally the richest club in the world. Now they're owned by the Saudis, you know, whereas Man City, you know, if you're any good, you'll go and play for Man City, top of the mm. top of the premiership you know, playing some amazing football, you know, and so you get that, you get this sort of the business itself can become a talent magnet for mm -hmm. people. So, you know, some of the things about attracting and retaining great staff go away or become not the challenge you had when you were starting out, you probably end up dominating some niche. And mm -hmm. so you've got some brand going for you, you know, and people therefore seek you out and some of your sales and marketing challenge goes away. You know, you've got to get to the point where the, the flywheel is spinning, but that they are some of the things that happen when you've got, you know, when you're on a roll, that great fun. And if you're like different from trying to, how do we make this thing profitable? Or, you know, how do we gain product market fit? You know, either, you know, a business that's sort of gone over the top and is struggling because it hasn't evolved or a business that's yet to get the ball rolling. Mm. That's it. Yeah, you're in that sort of sweet spot. And it's like, okay, we're pushing forward here. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to, we've got a new client. I was talking to them before Christmas and they said, right, well, we could grow at 200% next year or 300%. And it's like, oh, to have those problems, you know, there, <laughs> there are people, there are people around the world going, what, what do you, and, you know, I said to them, well, what do you want to grow at 300% for? You know, 200% the wheels might bloody come off, right? 300%, are you sure? And they said, no, we have to, you know, we feel compelled to because, you know, we are, we need to reach scale in our, in our marketplace. And if we don't do that, somebody else will overtake us and we are absolutely we've absolutely got this sort of first mover advantage in the space that we play in mm. and so we've got to push ahead hence these are all the things we think are going to break as we go from you know 200 people to 600 people because that's a big that's the that's the big part of the challenge right it's if i put my foot on the accelerator or the gas pedal what part of the car is going to fall off as a result of us achieving that velocity right there's always something that we've got to consider that's going to bend or break in our organizations that we need to rebuild as we go through that scaling process 
Yes. The way that I see it, there are two actually quite different points in an organization's journey where they can hit some of these growth numbers. The first one is almost when you're just emerging out of your startup phase where your 20% year-on-year growth is actually pretty easy to achieve because your market share is so small. So, yes. you know, you've got one client, you get another client, you've doubled your, your, your market share, right? And that has a different set of challenges than, than a slightly more mature business that's looking to hit those 20% year-over-year growth goals that has a greater degree of complexity in it, right? Talk a little bit about those two different organizations and the challenges they would have. Yeah, look, I think that sort of there are... You get past the sort of one and a half million, you know, either Mm. it's pounds or dollars, you know, and and it's one person and one person on all of their helpers, but no leadership team, you know, and that's Santa and his elves. (laughs) That's that's right. That's right. But you see, Apple did quite well. Steve Jobs and all his many helpers, right? So that can scale. But you've got, if it's a two person, like if there's two people, then it probably gets to two and a half million before it hits a wall and needs a leadership team. There's sort of an inflection point around profitability driven by span of control issues that you hit at about 25 million 20 million so 17 18 million profitability takes a dip Mm. and also the ceo at that point can no longer be the expert in the thing that they used to do so now there's a leadership team and the ceo's job is now to lead the company rather than be head of sales or head of design or whatever they were doing before right and you get out that other side of 25 million and now you're on your way to north of 100 million you're probably going to 150 million before the span of control issues and changing everything out happens again and that's probably where most of our clients are sort of 25 million to 150 million on that journey but the team at 25 million not often the team that gets to 150 and that's can these people scale and grow you know i was having a conversation with a client just this afternoon about some members of her executive team you know and one of the things is your job is now to make yourself redundant Mm-hmm. You know, that might be the CEO needs to do that. It might be that everybody on the executive team needs to do that. It's like finding the slot in the organization that you're going to be great at. And it mm-hmm. might, because your your role might get narrower and more detailed. That tends to happen. People become more specialist and less generalist. And then people find themselves in an organization that they're no longer a fit for. It takes somebody with maturity and low ego to be able to step away from something they've created because they, they're no longer the right person to take it on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that that's the CEO or some of the other founders, or it might be individuals in different roles in the organization. And so often it's even at the leadership team. So I coach CEOs and the leadership teams and the company can never outperform the leadership team. Mm-hmm. And wherever you are on that journey, there'll be something happening in the leadership team, which is either accelerating or decelerating the growth in the organization. And so it's really about people. Yeah. And I find that eternally, I'm curious every time I speak to a new client or we see a client that we haven't seen for a few months and it's like, what has happened? How have they evolved? Mm. What new challenges come along? How is the team pulling together or not as mm-hmm. a result of that? You know, and you look, you've got to change the IT systems along the way and you probably change, you know, you probably go up market and serve larger clients, you know, so those things happen as well, but they're still at its heart. It's a people thing and it's a leadership team. And how do those people see those challenges and come up with plans to overcome them? Yeah. Ain't that a funny thing? Because we often start from the perspective of, well, if you really truly want to build a scalable business, you know, you've got to ensure that you've got 
got the right systems and processes in place to, to enable that to happen. You've got to make sure you've got a strong strategic plan tied to your vision. You've got to make sure that you've got cascading OKRs that I know you talk a lot about down throughout your organization. And it all seems very process driven, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to the people that are overseeing that business. And if, if you don't, if you can't get that right, if they can't grow and mature, and like you said, put your ego to the side, it doesn't matter how great your plan is or your systems or processes are, it's all going to fall apart. Totally. And what's really funny, because we, you know, we work with businesses, some of our clients only turn over a couple of million and at the top end, you know, maybe three billion, right? Pounds. Right. And so it's a huge span of turnover and the small ones think the big ones have got it all sorted and <laughs> the big ones wish they were small again because it was easier and so it still just comes down to people and change management right mm -hmm. so you, yes look you've got to have a plan and if you don't have a plan you just go around in endless circles but ultimately it'll come down to the right people creating the right plan and then all the way down in the organization how do we make sure that people are doing doing the right things mm. when nobody's looking you know it comes down to culture how do we create a great culture for this organization yeah and in that, and that's sort of cascading the vision okrs is a tool but you know we're going to have to cascade okrs out to the organization if it doesn't exist and that's a change management program and that involves people again it's all with people no wonder people write software <laughs> I don't like people. I'm going to create a software company and then it gets successful and they've got people and it's like, damn, I've got this thing that I didn't want. I've got all these people around. And I mean, it also adds, uh, you know, a little bit more of a reason for some of those companies that say, look, we're going to try to cap off our headcount, but we want to continue to grow revenue. And in order to make that happen, what we need to do then is automate a whole bunch of stuff. And like you said, that's a different set of problems, but it's at that point in that circumstance, it is some of the, those process and software problems versus if you want to continue to, to, to scale and maybe go past that 25 million mark even up towards that 150 million mark and beyond, you've got to get comfortable with the fact that your job as a leader is in dealing with the people all day, every day. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had a call with somebody a few months ago and I said, so what's your challenge? And he said, I just, this is the CEO and founder of a company. And he just said, I hate my job. <laughs> and I said, well, change it, change right. it, do something different. And he's like, I don't know what you mean. I'm the CEO and founder of this company. How do I change my job? I said, well, what is it that you enjoy doing? And he told me, and I said, well, just do that then. And he said, is that a thing? <laughs> I said, look, there are three different bits. There's income, equity, and control. And often mm. people get the three and they conflate them, but you can yeah. split them up, right? And so, you know, I remember we worked with a client, see a number of people had founded the business. One of the founders was still the CEO. One of the founders was a salesperson mm -hmm. because he couldn't be the sales manager. He didn't want to be the sales manager, didn't have the skills, whatever. But here he was, he was one of the founders, still a big shareholder and was an employee, mm -hmm. right? Because he'd realized that that was the job that he could do most successfully in the organization to maximize the return on, you know, on a shareholding. And right. so, so often people get this conflated, oh, I'm a founder, so therefore I have to be on the C-suite. Well, right. again, that's ego getting in the way of making the rational decisions. And so often we help clients work through that. That can be interesting. And also one of the other things is conflict. I think we spend increasingly more and more time on helping organizations have more productive conflict. So not interpersonal conflicts, not you and I yelling at each other because we hate each other, but task-based conflict. Most of our lives being trained to not be difficult with each other. You know, yes. be nice, get along. If you've got nothing nice to say, don't say anything. You know, certainly at school, you know, I've got two daughters who are seven and six at school, and I'm not sure that they're being taught to disagree 
disagree violently with their teacher over a matter of philosophy. But, you know, that's what you want in organizations. It's here is a, what are the facts? Mm-hmm. And sometimes those facts are brutal, you know, so let's make sure that we have then a philosophical debate. If we have to, let's yell and shout about this, but not fall out, right? How do we have constructive conflict so the organization makes the best decision as quickly as possible? And do it in an environment where there's psychological safety, so everyone in the organization feels as though they can speak truth to power and not be, you know, intimidated or bullied or or it'll go against them if they do speak up. Because, look, if you take NASA as an example, look, both of those space shuttles that crashed, you know, somebody in NASA knew that that was likely to happen, but NASA hadn't put the process in place that that information got to the people making the decisions. And so often that happens in organizations. You know, actually one of the most powerful things you can do is do that pre-mortem. So here's a thing that we've decided to do. A year from now, really what will have stopped us achieving that let's go into the future and look back and everybody has to come up with some reasons why so the person who has the bit of information which they're thinking i can't step into this silence and be the only person who says the emperor's wearing no clothes Mm -hmm. right if everybody has to say what's the problem with this picture then we find these nuggets that we can manage our way through that you know actually we already knew that this wasn't going to work somehow we just were blind to it right yeah and i think also in that notion that positive conflict also has to be back-ended with a robust and well-trusted and well-understood decision-making process because often what happens is a team will, will start out to create an equitable environment where everybody gets a perspective and gets to share their thoughts but then they don't know how to turn that into a decision and so what happens is either the folks that feel strongly about a particular perspective or just the ones that are the most boisterous end up just circling the drains over and over and over again restating their perspective and position over and over again until there's one person standing because they just had more stamina than everybody else and then by that stage everyone's like fine you know what well that's it that's the decision that we'll make and it's just i think that in the work that i've done helping teams take that conflict and go okay well then how do we get all of these diverse opinions and perspectives and actually whittle it towards a decision that we can all stack hands around do you see that happen yes i do and i was just thinking you know that sort of conflict style you know that the alpha male, you know, growling at people and people going, okay, I'm not sharing my opinion anymore because every time I do, I get my teeth kicked in. We do see that. And in fact, I think that's probably more prevalent in the larger organizations we work with Mm. because, you know, part of what got you here is that elbows out, aggressive, you know, because actually that lots of large companies operate exactly like that. Right. You know, no place for the timid. And so I think you're absolutely right. That's where I think using facts rather than opinion and helping a team say, okay, what are the facts, not the opinion? And what does that mean for our organization? And not doing it in groups. I mean, you know, doing it in pairs or threes. Right. Can actually build consensus without the alpha male's ability to, you know, turn the group. Because, you know, they can, they can maybe do it one-to-one, but actually the, the way in which we process this information and come to agreement is in smaller groups and then bring it back together. So yeah, that's a challenge that can work. What else do you see in the work that you do? A lot of time as well, the leadership team, whenever they get together, particularly if they're a fairly immature leadership team, and I don't mean that in age, I just mean in terms of having productive conversations, they don't even know what their role is in the room. They're like, we have these leadership meetings and we talk about stuff, but am I here to share my thoughts? Am I here to advise you, Mr. or Mrs. CEO? Am I here to actually make a decision collectively as a group? Like, what, what do you need me to be? And actually just intentionally spelling out, this is the purpose of our senior leadership team. This is how we make decisions. 
things. These these are the areas that are fall within our horizon of concern. And these are all of the issues that will push down deeper into the organization. Just having those intentional conversations ahead of time can save a whole lot of wasted discussion, circling the drains, not really understanding what we're there to do and actually get us there to make good decisions quicker. I'm laughing because I think if you're a Martian, if you want to know a company's culture, just go to some of its meetings. And I don't right. think you need to. I don't think you need to go to the meetings at the bottom of the organization. Just go to a leadership meeting in an organization right. and just sit quietly in the corner. And right. all of the dysfunctions of this team are there, right? Right. You say to people, "Look, tell me what makes a terrible meeting." People reams. People can fill pages, and right. yet they turn up at a meeting and allow themselves to do all of the things that they know they shouldn't do. It's completely right. bizarre. <laughs> yeah. They it's just like, they just get sucked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like you know, there's some sort of bad behavior created, and everyone is then culpable. But, you know, one of the other things is that I think, again, people are different. So we've been playing around with a tool from Patrick Lencioni and the table group mm. uh, called Working Genius. Mm. And one of the things it does there is it said, look, some people like to operate at 50,000 feet. So they're entirely comfortable having strategic conversations. And in fact, generating new ideas, their serotonin kicks in when they've had an idea. Then you've mm -hmm. got other people in the room who want to operate at 1,000 feet or 500 feet. And they're going, these strategic conversations are all very good, but when's the plan? When are we getting to the detail? They only get excited when we get to the detail. So unless those two groups of people know where they sit and where, you know, the type of conversation they want to have, right. half of them are being frustrated by the other unknowingly yes. all of the time. <laughs> Yes. I mean, the way that you put the folks that operate at a thousand foot level in these, those strategic discussions is way too nice. Most of them are sitting there going, why am I here? You're wasting my time. I've got an actual job. They're usually trying to text somebody on their team saying, hey, can you just send me an emergency so I can get out of this meeting? Because it's killing well, me. Well, you know, it's, I kid you not, we spent two days with a client a couple of years ago. And the challenge we were trying to wrestle to the ground was, is it okay in this company to do email in a meeting? Two days. <laughs> Right, because it appeared to be solved in about five seconds. Because of course, <laughs> somebody very noisy said, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, it's not acceptable to do email in a meeting. And then somebody went, well, I'm in meetings all day, every day. Like if I didn't do emails in meetings, I wouldn't get any work done. And so it took two days to wrestle that to the ground <laughs> and come up with a charter of behavior in this organization. That meant that in the future, you didn't have to attend a meeting you were invited to, but right. you did have, but you weren't allowed to do email. Right. Um, For sure. And then it meant, you know, you couldn't actually accept one of the other things they had is people would ex tentatively accept three meetings for the same time slot. <laughs> and then at the last minute decide which one to go to. Which, of course, and these are all senior people and like this behavior is like everyone's behaving like this because that's how everyone behaves. But it's not until right. everybody steps back and goes, well, this is mad because like, you, <laughs> you're trying to make a decision and you need five people in the room. And at the last minute, like five minutes before the meeting, one of the people declines. So you have to try and reschedule. And it's oh, like, no gosh. wonder everything takes no, no wonder it takes a long time to get anything decided here. Or they make a decision and the person then complains that they made a decision without them. And right. I sit there and go, right, okay. Just say that all again in English to each other and just agree whether you think this is how you want to behave in the future. Right. Okay. And it's just incredible how if you, you could just take a step back, define that team charter, define what those acceptable behaviors are, and then stick with it, how much more productive your, your meetings are going to be up and down the organization. You know, people, like you said, they complain all the time, I hate meetings, to which I'm actually, a, I'm a huge meeting advocate. I'm like, you don't hate, hate meetings. You just hate bad meetings and all of the meetings that you're in are bad meetings. <laughs> meetings can, can actually be some of the most productive, creative, innovative, like, 
incredible times in your organization's like way of, of collaborating with each other. You just do them terribly. I think competitive advantage comes from collaboration. Right. Right. And, you know, homo sapiens out-competed Neanderthals because, you know, we live in groups of up to 100 and Neanderthals were in small family groups and say, we just had scale advantage. Mm. And so, you know, here we are trying to collaborate. And I think meetings are where we collaborate. And one of the things I like to do is ask people at the end of a meeting to score the meeting out of 10. Mm. And, and often somebody will say five and I'll say, okay, why a five? And they'll say, well, this was terrible and this was terrible and this was terrible. And I say, okay, that's really nice of you. You sat here quietly for an hour knowing that this was a terrible meeting for you and for everybody else, but you chose to stay silent. Why was right. that? Yes. And they're like, ah, 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 ah. you know, I, we do it all the time. We turn up and sit in crappy meetings and blame everybody else, except we don't, and don't take responsibility for it. So just incredible. <laughs> so just as we come to a wrap, I want to ask you a question that's going to be super simple for you to share an answer to in like the three minutes that we've got left. It's been at the back of my head since you talked about it on the way through. As a leader or, or an executive in an organization, how do you know that that company has started to outgrow you? How do you know that you're not going to make the next transition? What are some of the key signs and indicators? I think you, are you enjoying yourself? I think it's one, right? And But I do think that one of the things that I speak to people about all the time is I ask people to describe what the company invests in their role. So not in them. So, you know, mm. how much money does the company invest in the role, this role, and what do they get? Mm. And I think if people describe that in verbs, I manage the team or something like that, as opposed to revenue or net promoter score, a noun, right? The output, those people that describe in outputs, I think it's easier for them to see how they bring people on to do the work that they do and that frees them up to go and do something else. Those people who feel their job is to manage the team, it's much easier for them to be caught out because they are imagining their role as doing the work rather than be responsible for the managing the team to deliver the output. They also probably, and this is my experience working with large numbers of people, they got promoted to that job because they used to do the job that below that. I mean, either in this firm or in a different firm. And so it's easy for them to jump in and do the work of the people who work for them to help out. And that I think is a challenge. And if you reframe it for them and you say, your job is to make yourself redundant, mm -hmm. that then positions them as a coach, as a strategist, and as a developer of their team, and also if they're goal focused, so their job is to get the team to deliver the output, then actually, I think your ego isn't connected to the work, it's connected to the development of people. And then I think you've got much more likelihood to rise with the tide than get stuck because the task will change, right? The job of doing the job as the business goes from 10 million to 50 million to 100 million will be different. Mm. And so if you can't step outside that and say, okay, I can see how this is changing, I can see how it's evolving. I need to manage my team differently. Your head will be down in the job rather than up and looking around and coaching your team. And right. then you can probably stay, you've probably got much more chance of rising up within the organization. So it's probably that mindset at the beginning that helps people rise up or even then say, okay, this is getting to the point where I'm not enjoying it. And you know, some people enjoy companies of a certain size and complexity mm -hmm. because they get to play a broader role. And so what happens as businesses get bigger 
is often the role narrows down and becomes more specialist. Right. I think if it's getting, you know, if it gets too specialist, again, some people don't like that. They say, actually, you know what? I like running sales and marketing, not marketing. Right. Or, you know, I like running sales, all sales, rather than just new business versus you know, the account directors or the pre-sales team, you know, and whereas I think if you're a sort of, if you can take a role of strategy and development and coaching, then not only are you indispensable because the organization is always going to find somewhere for you to go and apply those talents. I think that's where I've seen it work really well, where people aren't focused on doing the task. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Dominic, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, and your perspective with us. Where can folks go and find out more about you and your wisdom? Well, Dominic Monkhouse, thankfully, there's not very many of us. There might only even be me. So if you search for that on Google, like loads of links will come up. Monkhouseandcompany.com is the website. Email me from there. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Delighted to chat. We've got a podcast you were on our podcast the melting pot find that on apple you know we put it out every week so you know come and have a listen to the interview i did with you as yeah. a start point and if you like that then listen to a few more episodes excellent thank you so much for being here dom it's been an absolute pleasure as always to talk with you and i hope you have a wonderful day thank you thanks for listening to lead like you give a damn if you enjoyed the show please tell a friend subscribe rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about me, the show, or the work that I do, you can go to davemckeown.com and I'll see you next time.